Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas. This is one of a series of summer discussions that we've recorded to take a step back from the week-by-week events that we talk about during the rest of the year. This time, we're covering government in summer. What happens when Parliament's in recess, the Prime Minister, his Cabinet, MPs and civil servants are trying to take a break, and when, as we've seen in the last few weeks, serious crises are just as likely, or perhaps even more likely, to erupt with unpredictable consequences. This discussion was recorded in mid-July, before the fall of the Afghan government and the dramatic and disturbing events in Kabul and elsewhere in Afghanistan. We did talk about how often the unexpected happens in government in August, from flooding to disease outbreaks to overseas crises, though none of us predicted quite how disrupted summer 2021 would prove to be. Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas. It's summer. Parliament is in recess. MPs are kicking back with a glass of something cold slash working hard in their constituencies to eat according to preference. Civil servants are slacking off at four o'clock or preparing to be ahead of the game when refreshed ministers return in September. Again, delete according to preference. And uh, think tanks are, well, it's probably enough of that. Just because the Prime Minister is on holiday and the House of Commons isn't sitting doesn't mean that government stops. Crises at home and abroad are almost as likely to erupt in July and August, or at the end of December for that matter, as they are at any other time of the year. Wars, terrorist attacks, floods and diseases, animal and human, can all interrupt long-planned holidays. So how does government work in summer? What does it feel like? Is it a time when people can finally attack their to-do lists or just grab a few precious moments of rest? What happens when there's a crisis and the Prime Minister or the Home Secretary or the Cabinet Secretary isn't around to deal with it? I'm delighted that we've got a sizzling summer panel to reveal the secrets of government in summer. Joining me today is Jackie Smith, who was a government minister for a decade, including two years in that most crisis-prone department, the Home Office. Welcome, Jackie. Hello. Good to be with you. Kate Fall was Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron for over a decade, including six years when he was Prime Minister. She's now a Senior Advisor at Brunswick and a member of the House of Lords. Hello, Kate. Hello, nice to be here. Steve Richards, as well as a rock and roll politics podcaster, is a presenter and columnist for the Guardian Independent New Statesman and others. Hello, Steve. Hi there. And Sam Coates is a scoop-getting political journalist and Sky News's deputy political editor. Hello, Sam. Hello there. Let's start with how government, and particularly at the start, number 10, feels over the summer. Kate, you were there for many summers. Paint a picture for us of a normal August day in Downing Street. Well, the danger of being in Downing Street in the summer is you think it must be time to have a bit of a break. And whether if you're the one that's holding the fort, you're there with less of the backup team than you normally would have. So um, in a way, it feels nice. You sort of walk around the building and take longer to have a cup of tea. But when things go wrong, which they do in exactly the way you said, whether it's a domestic thing, whether it's sort of floods, whether it's a a foreign policy issue, you do feel slightly like you're holding the fort on your own. So it does feel like um, relaxing, but a bit precarious. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent description of uh, much of the time I remember from uh, from those days. But the, the other thing I suppose that's a bit different is the pres- the physical presence of the Prime Minister. I certainly remember there's a there's almost an electricity in Number Ten when the, when the PM is there, uh, and and the same in a in a different way when a Secretary of State is is there in a department. Does that matter almost as much as the month or the season or, or what day it is? 
that's completely right. I mean, you really feel the power of the personality of the prime minister and you feel when they leave the building, literally. Um, and, and so that, that is definitely the case. The other danger, of course, is that you have sort of good, goodwill from a deputy or a senior member of the cabinet who comes to your morning meeting and, and, um, even worse, tries to make a decision. <laughs> Yeah. And in many ways, I, I would have loved to just cancel the, the 8.30 and, and 4 o'clock, our key, our key meetings of the day, because really what I needed to do was check in with the Prime Minister. And I think that is the key difference of the modern time and holidays is that, you know, it, David Cameron really was always available on the phone. And if I was holding the fort, I would speak to him at least twice a day and be on, on constant communication. So the idea that someone else is running the show is, is sadly for them, for the I was going to ask about this actually, but uh, we've got your take, Kate. Jackie, do you think this this sort of I'm exposing my prejudices like Kate's, but this sort of slight fiction of the you know the deputy in charge is that just a sort of complete confection for the media? Does that does that matter at all? Um, I th- I slightly think it is a confection, although don't tell John Prescott that I said that because he always <laughs> did believe that he was the deputy prime minister, and in fact he did summon people and in fact ring you up and give you a telling off if he thought that things weren't going as they should have been. So I think it partly depends on who the deputy is, to be frank. Yeah, I th- I'm sure that's right. And and Jackie, when when you were a minister, did you get mm. a chance in the summer to catch up with the inbox or the or the red box? Well, the good thing about particularly if you're a junior minister, the good thing about the summer is, of course, there's no parliament. And that does make quite a difference. So, you know, you're not able to spend time in your constituency like backbench MPs are. You will still be in the department. If, like me in my very first job, you get appointed just before the summer recess. And certainly when I was in government, the Prime Minister did have a bit of a tendency to do that, to do reshuffles in July. Then you're spending your time actually getting to know the job. If you're in the job, you're just taking a massive breather that you're not having as a more junior minister to keep rolling up to parliament and doing adjournment debates and answering questions and all the rest of it. So you're working, you're going out and about more, you're doing some visits. And yes, you are able to just slow things down a bit and have it, have a bit more of a think about what's going on. That's interesting. And uh, Jackie and, and Kate, you're now liberated to uh, to answer this cheeky question. Is it quite nice when the boss is away? Jackie. <laughs> do, the, um, do the mice play, are you asking? Um, well, it does feel even so if I think about, it depends on the boss, you know, because to be honest, um, my first ministerial job, David Blunkett was the boss. It never felt as if he was away, even if he wasn't in the building, because he was such a big sort of character around the ministerial team. It's quite nice, but I think as Kate says, also slightly scary to be a junior minister with responsibility for things that might be happening in the department. And of course, it's different depending on what department you're in. If you, When I was in education, quite a lot of people would be around anyway, because of course, halfway through August, you then have two days of exam results where you've, you've got to be there anyway, responding to the exam results. Whereas when, when I was at let's say, trade and industry, it was a much calmer during August, with the exception of the time when 
everybody was on holiday. Some I don't even remember what it was now happened. And because I had been foolish enough to go to Wales rather than abroad, I was the <laughs> one that had to do the Today Programme interview, which basically, because it was the good old days, involved me finding a cafe with a fax machine so that the briefing could be faxed to me that I could read before I then found a place near my caravan where I could actually get enough phone signal to do this blooming interview the next day. Yeah. Now we're going to we're going to come on to holiday destinations later so uh, that's a, that's good evidence for that. Uh, Steve, you've written a lot about different prime ministers and uh, we got a we got a hint of that from Jackie and Kate there. How did they differ in their approaches to summer holidays? I mean Brown and Thatcher didn't even seem to enjoy them whereas Blair, Cameron and Johnson kind of seem that they do. Yeah, I mean it's partly a test of whether prime ministers can really compartmentalize and decide a holiday is a holiday and they're going to switch off. Famously Margaret Thatcher and Gordon Brown quite often returned early from holidays. Mm. Her in her case because she was bored in his because he desperately wanted to prove he could respond to any crisis. I remember him being the Gordon Brown photograph looking awkward i think in um somewhere in suffolk uh yeah. the first summer yeah. he was prime minister with sort of awkward jacket trying to enjoy himself on a beach or something within a day he was back because foot and mouth had erupted briefly again um and she thatcher was back all the time the others could compartmentalize and switch off and relax although there's something weird about august A, quite a lot tends to happen in August anyway. And B, even if it doesn't, I think a lot of prime ministers, the book I wrote about prime ministers, one of the things I was most struck about is quite a lot of the time they're miserable, anxious, and neurotic. And after July, they think, well, that's it. The hot summer season's gone. I'm survived. And yet somehow when they come back in September, there's an air of crisis around. Um, Not necessarily precise, but weird things happen in August that trigger the then much more intense autumn political drama. It's really interesting. It shows how central the prime minister is in our system, I suppose, as well. I remember a, a cabinet minister saying saying to me in uh, in 2007 that they took the call from Gordon Brown and he said, I'm coming back. Everybody around the room's heart sank <laughs> because although it's probably the right thing to do, it was, um, it, it was, it was definitely his style. Sam, what about the Westminster lobby? How does that change in summer? Is it, is it more relaxed, more on the lookout for silly season stories or uh, are they using the relaxed holiday vibes to trip up ministers? God, no. We're recording this in um, (laughs) mid-July and already the pre-summer tension, I can feel it in my stomach. Applied much more in my days uh, working for the Times newspaper than it does uh, now. But oh my God, did I hate the summer, probably for the reasons that other people on this podcast hated the summer as well. But you've got to picture the scene. Um, What happens in the summer is that your little political teams get cut in half or more. So there's only one or two of you there Monday through to Friday. There are no MPs, there are no ministers, there's no business, there are no daily briefings, there's no statements. But the newspaper comes out seven days a week, and you're still expected to produce the same amount of content that you did before. There's still a front page every day, and there's still news editors asking um, what what you're going to fill it with. And you're right, less happens in, in, in August. So all, the, all our beloved specialists in other non-political areas take it off or produce next nothing, um, arguing there's nothing on our patch. So it all falls to us. And that's where our 
piece of cloth turns into a piece of string and you have to stretch it as far as you possibly can in order to get over the line and get through and get through each day it was about as horrible and as tense a period in journalism as as i can uh, remember and there would be absolutely no credit for getting through it because your more senior colleagues would waft back in in early september uh, declare they were in charge now uh, and uh, erase the august, the august from memory um so it was it was very tough and what that means is yes there are silly stories but they're on the front page and have got serious headlines not necessarily through our choice but because we were having to make do and mend with the materials available to us that's probably a description of what it was like pre-2016 but it's probably worth pointing out um, that we're all talking about summer as if it's time off in 2016 just before the summer there was a brexit referendum and complete government collapse in 2017 there was a general election and complete government collapse in 2019 there was a change of prime minister and nobody knew what way was up um, and then in 2020, there was a pandemic. So we haven't had a, a normal summer of the sort that we're talking about uh, for at least five years. Although I wonder whether this summer is going to be the first one that we saw of the sort that we saw kind of pre-2015. That's really interesting. I completely uh, agree on your um, uh, uh, recent summers. In, in the civil service, everyone always says to each other, uh, well, you know, we'll get that done in, in August over the summer. And in my experience, it absolutely never, ever happens because there's always something uh, something going on. The, the sort of silly season stories, though, Sam, do they matter? Do, do they ever have long-term consequences or is it is it sort of fluff? Can you think of ones that, that have, uh, aside from the serious stories that we'll come on to talk a, a, about in a minute? I think what happens in summer is, as I said, there's less, there's sometimes less material to go to go on. But but often, as a consequence, we sort of know the areas that are significant, and and we sort of mine away at them in a in a slightly dogged fashion. And I think there are lots of rather repetitive themes across summer stories that are repetitive for a reason. Often the eye of Sauron or the media spotlight turns and switches from government, which is doing things onto the opposition and the Labour Party in the mm. 2010, which isn't doing very much. It's also trying to have a summer break. And the media asks, well, what's Labour up to? What, what are they doing? And, and where's the leader? And why is he on holiday? And why is there nobody in the leaders? And quite often yeah. you find the summer focuses on whoever's in opposition in a rather unflattering way. And actually, it's a lesson that recess, just as it is for deputies, and gosh, don't I know that well, is often a platform for the person in opposition because they've got a bit of time and space, but also they think their day job is to shadow the government and and do everything that the government does. They're also exhausted. And summer after summer, you would you would often be reporting on a labour crisis, or if you were if you were lucky enough and fancied variety, a Lib Dem crisis, because there would be this kind of vacuum there as well. But you would notice it more, and it was because people are in opposition. It's easier to see people panicking, and they panic more rapidly to you down the phone because there's less at stake. I think what you find is opposition pet parties find recess and holiday periods like a bit of a shakedown. And, and that might not be a bad thing because it keeps people on their toes, but 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 often it can feel deeply unfair to them as well. Uh, yet yet another test for Keir Starmer coming up. And if you've got any sense as an opposition, what you will have done, and I I was on the receiving end of this a couple of times, you will have saved up some answers from some written parliamentary questions that you, that have demonstrated in some way that the government isn't meeting some target or another, and you will use the summer to do that story and then it will get much more interest than it would have got in the sort of melee of a usual parliamentary period and of course the ministers are slightly on the back foot because they didn't see it coming that's what you'd do if you were a clever opposition during the summer 
But Jackie, you know, Kangaroo Wrong is, I mean, we, we absolutely had a couple of difficult summers when we were in opposition. One, I remember very well when, you know, more floods came down and David Cameron decided to go on a foreign trip. And mm-hmm. um, and that seemed to be the wrong decision. And I think that is always a sort of a, a, a narrative and a theme of the summer, which is when does the prime minister or leader of the opposition go on holiday and when does he or her not go on holiday or come back? But that decision of, of the flood going to, I think it was Rwanda, rather than staying in Blighty when the rain came down, um, caused us a massive drop in polls. And of course, Brown had just become um, prime minister and it all, mm. it was all looking very rosy for him and nearly called a general election. And we, we had to call together a very good party. Mm. Um, I and, remember and, it well, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> To the point of what the summer is about, politically, there is that sense of rebuild and a a sense that, you know, what's going to be the new political season and how will that play out? And uh, the summer is a time when lots of policy advisors and people like I I used to be sit there thinking about, thinking about that platform for party conference. Let's move on a bit to dig in in some more detail about when crisis hits. So, Jackie, it's it's mm. August. You get a call from a private secretary somewhere and something is kicking off. Uh, what happens? So let's think about 2006, where I was actually the chief whip, not the home secretary. But if you remember in 2006, you had two things that were particularly difficult to handle. One politically around the Lebanon um, war in 2006, when Tony Blair essentially rode in the argument was behind the US position. There was a lot of ill feeling amongst uh, Labour MPs, even the suggestion that there was a split in the cabinet between what Jack Straw was saying and what the Prime Minister was doing. And I can remember then having to spend a lot of time trying to talk to MPs as chief whip to try to sort of provide opportunities for them to talk to ministers rather than the newspapers because they were all scattered everywhere and that's what they were doing. And then, of course, after that, you had the, thank goodness, foiled terror plot involving the use of drinks bottles on cross-Atlantic flights. That required the Home Secretary and the Transport Secretary, Douglas Alexander and John Reid, really to have to completely drop everything and and reassure the public and to be in touch with their opposite numbers in the US. To a lesser extent, that was a bit similar to what happened to me straight after I became Home Secretary, although that wasn't all, you know, that was still whilst Parliament was sitting. You don't have people so closely around you, particularly your MPs, and that can be either difficult or potentially sometimes a benefit if you've got something like a terror plot that you're trying to deal with. And so much of politics is personal. Steve, do you think the the British sort of state is well equipped to deal with these kind of crises? I mean, are people around? Um, Richard Wilson tells the story of when 9-11 happened. The Prime Minister was was away and, uh, at the um, TUC conference, I think, and it was left to him to kind of galvanise the system. Is the British system good at dealing with crises when the key people are absent? No, because the British system is a curious sort of hybrid in effect. I mean, it is theoretically a party-based system, but the culture is almost presidential. So if there's a crisis, the big decisions require 
a hyperactive prime minister. And if that hyperactive prime minister is on holiday, it becomes very difficult, though not impossible, actually, given modern day communications. Uh, but as Jackie and Kate uh, were saying, and I think you confirmed, when the prime minister is physically around, that in itself makes a difference. Mm. Um, he or she can galvanize more effectively than uh, having a Zoom from their holiday hideaway somewhere. So in that sense, like so much in British politics, it really does depend, or English Westminster-based politics, on decisions from a prime minister. So he or she needs to be around and can't be all the time or else they'll go crazy. So no, it's not well equipped in that sense. And do you think it would be better if we had a sort of uh, more formal system of deputies? I mean, we talked about it a lot when Boris Johnson was very ill with COVID and Dominic Robb stepped up. Do we need to be a bit more kind of systematic about this? Or is it in the end always going to come back to the PM? I think there is a case for a much more formalised system, because as I say, A, they can't, even if they're fit, they can't be here all the time. We saw what happened uh, when one became very, very unfit. Um, so yeah, I think there is a, an overwhelming case to formalize that role. And the criteria should be, is someone capable of rising to prime ministerial challenges from that position? Now that will cause all kinds of internal tensions, um, because he or she will be seen as the likely next prime minister, etc. Though from what I've found, those who are seen as such never get it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think given the dependency of the British state or the Westminster-based bit of it on prime ministerial decisions, uh, to have a, a deputy, unlike with Dominic Raab, who just sort of seems slightly overwhelmed, not surprisingly, by the crisis that erupted around him when Johnson was in hospital, is sensible. Sam, what's the test for a prime minister then coming back? If we, we don't have the, the the deputy there, and there's a, it does seem that there's almost a sort of media test of the severity of the crisis that demands a prime minister come back. Kate earlier touched on David Cameron as leader of the opposition being away during flooding incident. What are the crises that really get get purchased, and uh, and what's the media's role in that? So I think the principal uh, job of the Prime Minister on his return is to steady the ship and, and, and calm nerves. I think that both the summers and what happened when Boris Johnson was in hospital last year and Dominic Raab took over are very good examples why there can ever be a, a deputy that solves all the problems in a formalised sense in, in, in either of those periods. And that's because Prime Ministers really only have one power alone, which is hire and fire. And if a deputy doesn't have the hire and fire power, they have no power. And so there's, it doesn't matter what you call them, doesn't matter how many badges they get from the Queen, it doesn't make two hoots. And, and that's the point about the summer. Um, if there isn't somebody o looking over people who are, you know, playing a little bit uh, around the edges naughtily as ministers and MPs and all the rest of it, um, and them knowing that there's any consequence for that, then, then there isn't really anyone at the top of the tree. So the moment the Prime Minister comes back, and the chief whip comes back and the sort of reporting system comes back, often just merely their presence will steady the ship and at least provide direction that had been quite hard to get while they weren't there. I mean, I think huge amounts of words are expended over the summer period that uh, that, that are useful for, for chit-wrapping purposes, mm. but um, <laughs> uh, many of which um, are, are never seen again. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for politicians to think about where they are as, as part of the national conversation and, and, and story and, and be able to tell a bit more over the summer because they do have, as Jackie says, mm. 
a platform that, that, that could be used. And I think the thing that depresses me about the way politicians approach the summer, if I'm being blunt, is that they get more timid when there's an opportunity for, for them to not more bold and not kind of, you know, but just to set out their arguments a bit more. We live in a sort of, you know, a, a better's paradise for politics at the moment, where the people who do, you know, make the bolder arguments more, more um, get a lot of space for them. But a, but the entire incentive structure within our political system is, is to be utterly cautious. And if the boss isn't there actively shaking his head saying, go on, go and do that interview, go and say that, then a lot of politicians, frankly, just shrivel up into little walnuts and don't do anything for as long as possible. I think that's a really interesting challenge from Sam. And I was sort of racking my brains as to, well, why didn't we do that? And of course, one of the reasons you don't is because the British political summer is quite overhung by the prospect of party conferences coming. And so one of the things you do, particularly towards the end of the summer, is you're beginning to think, the Prime Minister is beginning to think, if you're a Secretary of State, you're beginning to think, what what am I going to say at conference? What, what are going to be my big announcements? And if you've blown all the good stuff before you get to party conference, then to a certain extent, the way in which the political calendar works means that that's the point which you're sort of working up to. So you'd be unlikely to do it in August. But I think it's a really interesting suggestion, Sam, and an opportunity missed, it appears, doesn't it? Can I I pick you up on one thing on that, which is really, really interesting? And I think it's a, a, a a live lesson now, particularly for opposition parties, but forever, which is you don't need to spend like August going around making new announcements, you can almost just repeat a best of that people missed so much in politics, Mm. daily speeches in the House of Commons, daily speeches by cabinet ministers, that that if we even managed to scroll through once a speech uh, on our email as a triumph, just rerun the best bits of what you think went well, and and people will report report (laughs) as new. And even that would be a, um, a pass a bar higher than many, many of the summers that I went through. This is free political consultancy you're offering, Sam. The other advantage of that is, on the whole, too much weight is put on the party conferences. Now, sometimes they really do change the tide. And Kate mentioned the 2007 Tory conference, which was so important in deterring Gordon Brown from calling that early election, which the Conservatives might well have lost. But most of them, uh, there's too much weight attached to them. And there's a slight danger now in the framing of the Labour conference, you know, that this this is make or break for Keir Starmer and all. We've got one speech and a few interviews. Um, so, of course, it shouldn't be make or break. And if there was a, uh, a sense of momentum towards a party conference, the party conference would look like a more natural stepping stone onto the next big moment. Whereas at the moment, certainly for opposition parties and to an extent the government, they acquire such importance and that if they go wrong or are anticlimactic, that can have really severe consequences for a leader. Steve, I, I would just, I would say that I think that's absolutely right, and even more so for the opposition than for the prime minister. Just because you yeah. have so fewer um, opportunities for that level of 
you know, um, coverage, the bigger platform. And so from my experience, you know, being able to turn things around like we did in 2007, even the beginning of David Cameron, that first Blackpool speech, you know, come with me, those were really um, huge political moments, which as a prime minister, you get to make those um, moments, you, those interventions way, way more. And therefore, I think the party conference thing, in a, in a funny way, is a more stressful and important summer for um, of planning for the opposition than it is for the prime minister. I'm, I'm just going to bring us back to crises and the summer because uh, a party conference, we need a party conference special uh, IFG podcast, I think. <laughs> Kate, you were in number 10, as, as I said, through a number of summers. And it strikes me there are different types of crises. There are political crises that might erupt over the summer. I was thinking, this is one for Jackie, really, but David Miliband in 2008, publishing an article in The Guardian yes. that seemed like a leadership challenge. <laughs> then there are the, the domestic uh, crises like flooding or uh, animal mm. diseases. And that we haven't talked much about foreign affairs and international security crises. David Cameron had to deal in August 2013 with um, Syria and the use of chemical weapons in a recalled parliament. Uh, what's the, can you give us a sense of how those crises sort of differ when you're, when you're sitting in Downing Street in August? Well, the first thing is, of course, people are often all on holidays themselves. So for the Syrian um, crisis... Um, I think I was in Ireland with my with my children, and you feel that you feel the emails, you know, coming. Your your own switch will put you on, as you know, at a, a drop of a hat, and you'll gather on the calls, and they get faster and faster, and you feel a momentum growing in a crisis. And one of the key questions in these political crises over the summer is, you know, if the prime minister isn't back home when does he come home because of course if you come too quick it looks like you're panicking and you can't back to earlier conversation you have no boundaries you have no life if you if you come too late it looks like you're chillaxing and don't care um i think that with syria that that it was of course the the environment and the climate to that was terrible you know people dying from chemical warfare you know we were we were involved of course all the time with obama and we were watching what he was trying to do but the the real drama was around the parliament bringing parliament back to try and get their support and that was a parliament which always was in a way that the, the memory of iraq loomed over it and it I, I came back, I, I hummed and hard and then decided I had to come home with it with my children. And I, I remember coming into to number 10, everybody sitting around saying, we've got the support from Ed Miliband, it's going to be okay. And I thought, really? And I sat there with David Cameron while we talked to MPs right through the night and we were, we never, we were never going to get that vote. Um, and it unraveled very, very quickly. But the drama was all around Parliament and, and MPs and many who felt just very anxious in the in the leftover of the, the, the Iraq experience. And do you think the sort of the fact it was summer, the fact that Parliament was recalled made a difference there? I'm not talking about the, the numbers necessarily. I mean, it's a huge uh, decision, but the, the, the environment and the context for the decision making. It felt like lots of people on their own talking to people, obviously. So you're not there. You can't you can't see people, you can't look at them. I think that, you know, it, things unravel quite quickly when Edmund Ben decided he wasn't able to, to support. I think there's a feeble atmosphere around it of people coming back from holidays, flying in or jumping in. So it does create a more drama, I think, recalling Parliament like that. 
I'm going to move us on now, finally, then, to the human side of summer and holidays. And there's a reason we have holidays, and uh, perhaps particularly this year, ministers, senior civil servants, journalists, everybody involved in and around government will be completely exhausted. But Sam, the press still has a go. Does it matter if Boris Johnson lives it up in luxury as long as he uh, pays for it or or MPs uh, disappear off for long breaks, whether they're hard at work in their constituencies or, or not? Do you think it's time to cut them some slack? Well, I think that um, what summer does is in the absence of defined events, it scratches away at the things that it knows could be a problem. And so I think summer will always end up being a very good test of the bits that everybody sort of can smell don't, don't aren't working so well, simply as people in the media hunt for stories because there's nothing else to write about. So it's not overly cynical. It's just the reaction of people trying to do their job. And actually, it can quite alight on issues that aren't going terribly well, but, you know, haven't got a, a, a great deal of attention. The way you frame that question is a really good example. Okay, because you're relying on does Boris Johnson take freebies, right? That's a question in the public mind. You know, watchdogs have said sort of yes, no, maybe, you know, some qualified problem. But, you know, Kate's talked about David Cameron. Does he chillax too much? There's questions, you know, we know what the kind of, you know, what the vulnerabilities are. And the question is, does summer reinforce the vulnerabilities or is Mm. the way that the political actors um, work? completely yeah. vulnerable that's a, that's it, a, just in the way you're asking the questions you, you show what what we sort of end up looking at by default because there isn't very much else and it, and that's why summer ends up being quite painful for so many people why they get why, why everybody gets so damn grumpy in summer because they all <laughs> everybody, everybody on the other side of the curtain thinks that they've got god's right to time off and we're being screamed at to find something and write something. So we look to the things that are in front of our nose and then and they tend to be quite painful. And then everything gets incredibly antagonistic by about week three. But that's just the way that it works. And frankly, the political classes should man and woman up about it. Yeah, it's a brilliant defence of the fourth, fourth estate. Steve, Steve what, what Sam was talking about there was character almost. Summer reveals character. Do you think that's right? Well, in terms of holidays, it shows how leaders are perceived at any given time. So if they are incredibly popular, they can get away with having lengthy holidays. And by the way, I think they could all wholly justifiably get away. Um, but so to give a really interesting example, uh, just before the 97 election, over the Christmas New Year, before that 97 election, Tony Blair, who was ultra cautious about taking any risks, went for a holiday in Australia for three weeks at the depths of a bleak British winter. And I read a column saying, it's very interesting, no one's criticising him for doing this. There's no, oh, he's in luxury while we're in the dark winter of Britain, um, because he was so popular. He was so far ahead. He felt he could do it. He felt he needed the holiday. And he came back suntanned, and it didn't matter. But others who are seen in some kind of luxury, indeed Blair himself, when he became much less popular towards the end of his time as leader, it jarred. You know, when he was on holiday with Berlusconi, it became a story and a difficult one for him. If Boris Johnson is still well ahead in the polls, and it's not a freebie, I think he will be, he could go away for quite some time, partly depends on the pandemic, it has to be said, and justifiably so. But it really tells you about the way a leader is perceived as to how their holidays are reported. And Steve, don't you think this summer, they've got to watch this um, rule for one and rule for another narrative? Absolutely. 
because uh, that is back to your point about it reveals the sort of the weakness that I think if I was advising uh, number 10 now, I would be very on the watch out for that. And the other thing I would just say is, by the way, the photo shoot, of course, is um, the wonderful, um, silly, but but nevertheless symbolizes some of these issues we've been discussing. And we always had this with David every year that would agree to be the one photo. He always wore the same blue shirt as far as I can make out. <laughs> I um, think it's the same shirt, Kate, that Tony Blair used to wear for the same maybe. photo. Single transferable shirt. Kate, was this was this your job to organise that photo shoot? And how did you go about it? It wasn't. It was the magnificent Liz Sugg, who was ah. head of operations, and she she's a marvellous woman. But it, it it often I think sort of symbolised the mood of the time. You know, was it was it in Cornwall or somewhere else, or and how it was perceived exactly to your point, Sam, which is if people were in a good mood with David, they seemed to like the blue shirt, and if they weren't, they, they seemed to sort of you know fixate on his feet or something, or, or the seagulls stealing the chips. On that note, I'm going to ask you all one final question uh, in uh, you know, question time style. Where would you go on holiday if you were prime minister, Berlusconi or Bogdan? Uh, Sam? I'd go overseas, definitely. <laughs> I think the downside of, as Steve says, a proper break with your family, you know, you only had to read Sarah Vine recently to, to look at the costs on family of the political process. Go and spend time with them. It's somewhere nice. You all deserve it. Many nice places in the United Kingdom, obviously, I feel bound to say. But yes, I, I think I would go overseas as well. Jackie? Well, I famously, of course, as I've suggested earlier, used to go to my caravan. I wonder whether I could have gone there as Prime Minister, although I did go there as Home Secretary with armed protection. And one of my friends and colleagues, Mike Foster, the MP for Worcester, um, dines out on telling the story of I went on holiday with Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary. I was in a tent, she was in a caravan and the protection team were in a hotel down the road. And that, that was that was what um, happened. And I also used to say, of course, I was the Home Secretary, so I was in a static caravan, whereas Margaret Beckett was the Foreign Secretary, and famously she was in a caravan that moved around the continent. I can't wait for the podcast to come out. Uh, Steve? I agree with uh, Sam. Get out of the country, go somewhere and have a rest. You know, I think it, this will be wholly accepted actually kate's absolutely right they've got to avoid this one rule for everybody else and a different rule for them however if it's part of the sort of within the rules of how anyone else could travel at the moment uh they could do it i mean uh, uh, uh johnson and his now wife tried uh, scotland last year with a tent and a sort of house lurking nearby and it was clearly a disaster on many different levels and they had to give up so yeah i would do it and and, and not feel uh, too worried about it. They would have to do that sort of Cameron Blair photo with uh, uh, Johnson having coffee or something on, you know, and then I think they will be left in peace for a bit at least. And Kate? I would send them to Northern Ireland, to Donegal, <laughs> which is um, a beautiful place and um, hopefully help save the union at the same time. Have some discussions on the protocol. That's uh, <laughs> an excellent suggestion, perhaps with David Frost. Well, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. Thank you so much to Kate Fall, Jackie Smith, Steve Richards and Sam Coates. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. You can review the events of the past year and look forward to the new term starting soon. And remember to check out all our work at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And whatever you're doing, however many lateral flow tests you've taken, enjoy the summer. Thank you.